This morning, I want to talk with us a little bit about Who Has My Heart, Part 2. And in doing that, um, this is one of those messages that I feel I felt kind of tempted to say, if you, if you want the kiddie version, you probably need to go to the children's church hour because this is kind of the adult version. Uh, and so I'm asking you to put your thinking cap on and to stay focused and stay with us. Here's what drives me when I bring a message, well, really every message, but when I bring a message like this, this is what drives me. This is what motivates me. This is what gives me a passion to flow. And it is this. I picture in my mind as I'm, as I'm walking us through the scriptures together, I have this picture. It happens often for me. And I'm sure that it does for every pastor, every, every, every spiritual leader that I, I picture you all, and sometimes I picture names and faces, it happens, but I picture the people that I'm privileged to serve with. And Cynthia and I have been in a number of con- congregations where I picture that and lots of different people. And I picture you standing before the Lord, and I picture listening in on the conversation, and I picture Jesus speaking, and I I picture myself listening to that conversation and saying, Lord, was there anything I left out? Was there anything that I said that wasn't correct, that wasn't appropriate? Is there anything I left out that I should have admonished the people about before they came to stand before you? And so it, it just drives me to, to share truth the best that I know how. And so that's what motivates messages like this morning, especially. And so I encourage you uh, to, to listen with that kind of a heart. We'll be reading in Philippians chapter 3 in our study through this wonderful book. And uh, to, to just prepare your thoughts, uh, let me just say this. It's, it's about binges in some ways. Let me call them binges. Have you ever had a binge? You know, I, I got to thinking about binges that I've had in my in my life. You can think about your own, and it, it'd be fun if we could just hear all the different stories. If we could just march across, say, "Yep, this was a binge I had," or "This is what I went from this binge to the next binge." For me, uh, starting at about age six, all the way up to about age fourteen, and I wouldn't say that it ever totally stopped, but I had a binge for barbecue chips. I don't know why, but when I tasted my first barbecue chips i i just liked the flavor and i can still remember visiting my grandmother in knoxville tennessee and one of her relatives they had a lot of family down in tennessee and we would go there and one of the family members worked at a potato chip factory called tom's and tom's made barbecue chips and this relative of of my grandmother's would get these great big bags of Tom's barbecue chips and and only the employees could get a bag like this because it had no no uh, marketing on it at all it, it was just a, 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 a like a clear bag transparent bag but it's a big bag and she would fill it with barbecue chips they could get it like for a buck or something like that and I would just binge out I, I didn't want to share <laughs> no it's terrible I did not want to share with my brother and my sister I didn't want anybody to eat any of those barbecue chips and it was just terrible 
Well, then, then I kind of got promoted to milkshakes, and some of you know that, and, and so I binged on milkshakes and still do. And uh, then I kind of migrated to motorcycles, and I kind of, you know, I can still remember riding in the back seat of mom and dad's car with my brother and sister. They were twins, three years younger than me. My sister always had to sit in the middle. Feel bad about that now, but we always did that. My my brother was on the other side, and I would sit there in the back seat of the car, and we'd be on these long trips, whether it was vacation or wherever we would go. And I would picture that I was on a motorcycle, and I'm I'm riding along the side of the road, and I'm envisioning. I mean, I'm just having a great time. You know, the time is passing by, and you know, I I would hit those those jumps, and I I would just just like the video games the kids play. I would I would be on that motocross, and I'd be jumping over drives, and I'd be landing on the back wheel and bringing it down, and it was just I I binged on motorcycles, and I and you know, so finally when I was about 27 or 28, I, I finally got a used bike and I think I've had one pretty much ever since. I binged on it you know and you can binge on those things those kinds of things and it's on your mind all the time uh when it's a binge uh I binged for a while on guitars I I I learned music early my mother sent me to piano lessons until I was about till I till I couldn't stand it anymore and and, and then then I migrated to violin because my, my grand, great-grandmother got a violin and passed it through, and I took lessons on the violin, and I learned about tone woods, and I studied about Stradivarius and how they built the, the beautiful wood uh, violins and how, how they're so expensive today, and I studied about all of that. And then when I finally learned to play guitar when I was in college, uh, I fell in love with that. So I, so I know that's a, a Martin guitar up there. I studied about them. I know this, they have a distinct sound and, and so you can binge on that stuff. And I, you know, my wife will tell you, you know, I sat in my study this morning. I'm thinking, okay, what, what are the binges that I'm still messing with? You know, and I, and I looked in, in my study and I have three guitars like that sitting there. And I thought, I need to, I need to just, I just need one. I just need one. And then I got thinking about the other two and I thought, but I, but I like that one. I don't want to get, and I, but I like that one and I don't want to get, and so I have binged on that kind of stuff in times past. So I'm telling on myself, now, now my binge is, and always has been, as far as I know, I'll die with this binge, but it's ice cream. I just, I don't know, I love ice cream. Okay, now, having said that, having, having set the stage and you've been thinking about your binges and, and I'm sure none of you have any binges like that, but I, but okay, I'll confess my sin. So here we go, Philippians 3, and let's, let's think about binges. Let's think about things that occupy our time, occupy our interest, that we get passionate about. And here's Paul talking to the Philippian church. But whatever things were gained to me, barbecue chips, guitars, motorcycles, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, 
in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a powerful passage here. It's not one that we should just zoom right across. I, I just can't do it. There's just so much in here, and I, I won't exhaust all, all of it this morning, uh, no question. But let me just share this thought with you to, to get started. A French theologian who was born in 1623, his name uh, was Blaise Pascal. Some of you have studied him in history. He raised up a concept that has captured the world's attention. And really, ever since he, he shared these thoughts, we've thought about it. And it can be traced all the way back, really, to the Garden of Eden. And it has to do with what it must have been like for people before Satan and sin came in to mess things up. What must it have been like for Adam and Eve before sin entered into their lives and into the world? Before sin messed things up. And this idea I'm going to share with you from Pascal, it suggests that there was something very precious, something very satisfying in the relationship that God originally had with Adam and Eve before sin came into the world. Something really, uh, really outstanding in that relationship. And when sin came, it changed that beautiful, satisfying relationship forever. It suggests that somehow sin created an emptiness. You say the word emptiness. Emptiness. It's a hollow word. Emptiness. It suggests that somehow sin created an emptiness and a longing for God's presence in our lives that some people have described, and Pascal did, as a hole in our hearts. When sin came, it, it perverted the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, and it basically left them with a hole in their heart that can only be filled when people today are born by God's Spirit. That is the, that is the only way that, that void, that vacuum, that empty place can be satisfied. So here's what Pascal said, and I quote, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Unquote. About 345 years later, another man made a quote in a book called Jesus and the Intellectual. It was in 1968 that Dr. Bill Bright, who's the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, it's now known as CRU, C-R-U, and he wrote this book, and in this book he talks about the same issue that Pascal raised, and here's what, <clears throat> here's, here's uh, Dr. Bright's rendition of that in his book, and I quote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, woman, we could say, out of quote, 
which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made, made known through Jesus Christ. Unquote. So, uh, Dr. Bright basically paraphrased what Pascal brought up in the first place uh, 345 years earlier. One of the early Christian theologians said it in a similar way, St. Augustine. And let me give you a quote that St. Augustine said. It's on the same subject of, does God have our heart? And this is what Augustine said, quote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Unquote. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus addresses this very issue in the New Testament. And we can find it in John chapter 7. If you want to write this reference down, it would be fun for you to go back and study it up some more. But I'm going to share it with you that Jesus is dealing with this void, this emptiness, and what needs to happen. Through all these years, once sin came in, perverted that relationship that God had with Adam and Eve, left this hole in their heart that others have recognized in themselves and have recognized it in this world. And then Jesus says, there's an answer to this. And here's what he says in John 7, verse 37 to 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He, could say she, who believes in me, Jesus, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What we believe Jesus was saying is that once sin had come into the world, it cost Adam and Eve dearly because it changed the relationship that they had with God. It's as though they lost a piece of God that took away their peace with God. Isn't that a good little catchy thought? I didn't read that somewhere. That, if that makes any sense, I'll take credit for it because that's what I said that. Now, if you look that up and somebody else wrote that exactly like that, you need to tell me because it means I psychologically forgot who did it and just appropriated it and put it in my brain. But it's as though they lost a piece of God that took away their peace different peace with God. And what was left was an existence of emptiness that would always leave us searching for that peace, P-E-A-C-E, peace that was missing and something that they would, that they would long for, for the rest of their lives. Something that everyone would search for from the womb all the way to the grave. How to fill this emptiness that we have in our heart that may, we may not fully even understand or even be totally aware of all the time. 
Something that whether we're conscious of it or not at the time began when we asked ourselves a simple question like this. What will I do with my life? What am I going to do in my life? A more familiar way of addressing that is when we see young people. You know, we could go around to these young people sitting here on the front row and say, hey, what do you want to be? What are you going to do with your life? What, what, what do you think about the future? Who are you going to be? What, are you going to, what kind of work are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Uh, do you see yourself being married? Do you see yourself having children? Do you see yourself working in politics or in, uh, in, in, in the government or uh, uh, in the legal system or in church? Maybe God is calling you. What, what are you going to be when you grow up? In other words, it's that search for identity. It's like, what am I, why am I here? What, what is this life going to be about? Every person with, a, with a, a, a clear thinking mind has to wrestle with that. From that. From that nursery back there to a sense of awareness about themselves and about life, they will automatically, by default, be trying to figure out, who am I? And what am I going to do with my life? And what's going on inside me that will drive me in one direction or another? Now, atheists, you can get on the Internet and you can read up on this this passage and some of the things that I'm sharing, and you can get the atheist point of view. The atheists have the notion that there's no creator. The atheists believe that there is no God. So there isn't anything missing. There, there is no empty void. There, there isn't anything that's that's gone. So, so don't bother me with that nonsense about there's this hole in your heart. I don't have a hole in my, I don't feel like I have a hole in my heart. And the only path uh, in, in their trajectory is having to do with just trying to figure out, this is the atheist, trying to figure out how to exist and having to, how to navigate life until they die. That's all they have. And so they're happy to deny this emptiness, this hole in the heart or whatever, and just say, look, I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I got here. I really don't know. But the deal is I got to figure out what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to make it? How am I going to avoid trouble, pain, suffering, whatever, and then hopefully die in my sleep and I don't have any trauma, whatever. That's the, that's the traject- trajectory for, for someone who, who doesn't recognize that they are a spiritual being that God created them with a soul, and that there is this this emptiness. But for people who refuse that notion, people who refuse to believe that the universe that we know had no creator, people who refuse to believe that this was some kind of an accidental cosmic explosion that brought all of this together, people who reject that, and that would be most if not all the people in the room here, have concluded that every human being is a creation of the God Adam and Eve once knew in an intimate and satisfying relationship that became lost when they didn't follow instructions. And it's sad that that happened, and, it, and it's caused an issue for all of us uh, since the beginning of time. William Barclay, many of you read his uh, little commentary, he, he had a good word about this, uh, this particular uh, topic. And here's what he said, and I quote, The great basic problem of life is to find fellowship with God and to be at peace and in friendship with Him. Unquote. That's a great statement. It flows with really what we're talking about. So when Adam and Eve rebelled 
against God, they, in a manner of speaking, pushed God out of their heart. They, they probably didn't realize what they were doing. They didn't understand the consequences, no, no doubt. But they literally, as if we could do that to God, shoved God out of their heart. And unfortunately, that departure left them disappointed and no doubt regretting their decision. It's called buyer's remorse. They bought into what the devil was offering, found out that it was not as satisfying as what they had when God was in their heart. And guess what? It is not satisfying to live life trying to fill that void with anything but God. God is the only one who can fill that void. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy the longing in the heart of every soul for the peace and the presence of God in our lives. And that's why the Apostle Paul is writing these words to the Philippians. The Apostle Paul is telling us this can only happen through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us for very long in this series... Uh, Paul even has previously, and we talked about it, he's listed the things that he's tried. He's listed all the stuff that he dabbled with. He, you know, I'm making fun of this a little bit, but he's already had eaten the barbecue chips. And he's already drank the milkshakes. And he's already binged on different things that were meaningful to him, that he liked, that he, that he was drawn to. He said, I've, I've already tested these things, and guess what? They didn't, they didn't work. It did, it did not bring me peace with God, which is really salvation. It did not bring me into that right relationship with God. And so all the things that he listed, just I don't have time to talk about them, but, but I'll, I'll mention them again. We studied them. But he said, here are the things that I did. To try to fill that void and that emptiness. I tried ritual. I, I, I followed, I followed the, the, the rituals of my faith, my Jewish faith. He said, I tried, I tried to lean into personal heritage because I was a Jew. I tried to lean on that and, and knowing that I was born a Jew, uh, that didn't, that didn't fix it. Uh, I, I, I took a look at spiritual ranking. I, you know, I, w- I was of the Pharisees, the highest ranking of people that practiced religion. And he said, that, that, that didn't do it. I was elected to high positions. I got elected to the church board. I got elected to be the general superintendent. I got to be this, that, or the other. And he said, it didn't fill the void. He said, I, tradition, I, you know, I, I always, I've always gone to something I've always done, been, been around church. And, and, uh, and by the way, I live in a Christian nation. I live in a Christian nation. That's bogus. Nations, you know, nations aren't Christian or atheistic or whatever. Nations are a piece of land that we live on. And, and you know, if the people are Christians, then that's wonderful. It's not a Christian nation. It may act more Christ-like, hopefully. God forbid that things go some of the ways they're going now. But, but it's not a Christian nation. That doesn't save anybody. It doesn't fill the void because we live in America and a lot of Americans go to church. He said, I tried passion. Man, he said, if you knew how hard I chased these Christians, these believers in Jesus, I chased them hard and fast and furiously. And that didn't satisfy. Even when I saw them going to jail, even when I saw the parents leaving their little kids behind, even when I helped to hold the coats so the stones could be thrown. And some of them were, 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 were 
concussions and they were knocked out and then the, then they stoned them and they didn't live. They didn't survive. And I, he said, that didn't fill the, the, the void. He said, I tried legalism. I tried to follow every rule of the discipline of the Wesleyan church better than anybody else in this church. I tried that. And that, and that didn't bring me peace. None of that works, Paul said. He said, the only path to peace with God is in a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus said himself, when the spirit comes and, he, and the spirit has been, has been given to us, Jesus has now been glorified. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised. And then he was ascended. And he's at the, at the right hand of the father. So he, he's been glorified. And so the spirit, the Holy Spirit was sent by God, the spirit who walks alongside us, the paraclete, the comforter, the one, the one who we were singing about, God's never failed me yet, and I may be in a trial right now, but I'm confessing it in advance, even this is going to win, because God has never failed me, and he doesn't fail me, and we were singing that, and having fun with that, and reminding ourselves that God is really good, <laughs> and you know, Paul, Paul, Paul is just helping us to remember how great it is when, when the Spirit of God lives inside us. And that is what fixes that void. And anything else that we give our... Here, catch this. Anything else that we give our significant time to are idols. It doesn't mean that if I have more than one guitar, it's an idol. It doesn't mean if you've got a boat, it's an idol. And it doesn't mean if you've got a fishing rod or a shotgun that it's an idol. And it doesn't mean if you've got a sports car or if you've got uh, a house on the lake. It does not mean those are idols. But they can be. Did you catch that? They can be. It depends on, what's, it depends on what you're letting in your heart, what I'm letting in my heart. But idol worship was one of the very first things God commanded the people. He said, don't do that. Do not let things or anything except the Spirit of God, the presence of Jesus Christ in your life, don't let anything occupy your time and attention as much as Him. So let's look at what He said in Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these things saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to those, to those who love me and keep my commandments. No idols. No, what's the next iPhone? And I can't stand it if I'm not online checking it out. And I can't wait to see when it's going to be introduced. And I want to know how much it's going to cost. And I want to know how much I'm going to get trade in. And I can't get my mind off of the next iPhone and how well it's going to work. Or the first, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Yeah, well, yeah, Galaxy and, right. I can't get it out of my mind what the next whatever is. Because I have this passion. Now, is that passion sinful? No. But if the passion is taking us close to the edge of it being an idol, then that's a problem. 
And so that's what the sermon's about. How close are we in certain things, certain areas of our lives, to something becoming, or already is, and we haven't been paying attention, uh, to becoming an idol? Because it's, it's, it's not a good thing if we, if we get too close to that edge. It's a really bad thing, like Adam and Eve found out, when there really is an idol. So I really appreciate the author and pastor, uh, Tim Keller. How many have heard of Tim, Timothy Keller? Okay. So I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from Timothy Keller because he says it so, so well and so succinctly on, on the subject of idols in our lives and who really has our heart. So the question for all of us today, and this is for believers, who has our heart? Uh, for those who are not sure that they're Christians today, the question still works for you. Who has your heart? Okay, so who has our hearts? Here's here's Keller, I quote. In the first of the Ten Commandments, God prohibits idolatry. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The command asserts that we will either worship God or something else. Notice it does not envision a third option. There is no possibility of our worshiping nothing Since we need to worship something because of how we are created, we cannot eliminate God without creating God substitutes. Something will capture our hearts and imaginations, becoming the most important concern, value, or allegiance in our lives. So, every personality, community, and thought will be based on either God himself or some God substitute, comma, an idol, unquote. Uh, He goes on to say in another area of writing this, and I quote, The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many, and thus now a rare sin only among primitive people, Rather, idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. Why do we ever fail to love or keep promises or live unselfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer is that there is always something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. That is more important to our hearts than God. And that is enslaving the heart through inordinate desires. Unquote. Wow. It gets right to the heart of it, doesn't it? A Christian counselor uh, who writes today, and you may have read some of his uh, books, David Powelson, says this, and I quote, The most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation of one's behavior thoughts, and feelings. In the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? 
the Lord or an idol. An idol, then, is anything more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity. It is making a good thing into an ultimate thing. Idolatry is the inordinate desire of even something good. Unquote. All right. Having... (laughs) having heard those thoughts which take us kind of deep and cause us really some consternation. Let's get back to Philippians real quick. Paul abandoned his love of former things. We now know called idols. They were idols in his life. He was a highly religious person, but is an idol. Paul is saying to the Philippians, I have abandoned these idols Once I experienced the transforming power of Christ to save me, to guide me, and to empower me. That's what he's saying. I had to to let go of those idols. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a Pharisee anymore. It didn't mean that he renounced his Jewish background. It didn't mean any of those things. It meant that they're not idols. They're They're not his passion. They're, they're not the substitute for the one thing he couldn't get. And that was peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he said, once I saw that, all these other things didn't matter that much. They didn't drive me. They didn't take me away from, 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 from God. So the Spirit of God came into Paul's life the day he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. When did you meet Jesus? When was your road to Damascus? When did all the things that you had involved in your life up to the point where you met Jesus on the road to Damascus and you saw what he could bring into your life to restore what Adam and Eve were missing once they pushed God out and allowed sin in? Wow, what a tremendous thought. He said, the Spirit of God came into my life and it changed me. And his passion For anything other than Jesus. Catch this. We've been talking about circumcision. The cutting away of the flesh. Circumcision. His passion for anything other than Jesus got cut away from his life. Like the cutting away of the flesh in circumcision. The idols were cut away. The idols were, were, were put away so that God could return. And restore relationship. He, he found something better. Far better than anything he had ever considered. To fill that void in his heart and in his life. So who has your heart? God asked this morning. Who has your heart? I love an illustration. I shared this with my wife earlier. So it's repeat for her. But it was one pastor who was talking about about this whole issue of something better. And he said, I, this particular person said, I, I, loved, I loved soccer. Soccer was like everything to me uh, where he grew up. And, you know, worldwide soccer is huge. It's, it's bigger than, than NFL and NBA and all of that. Soccer is worldwide is huge. 
And he said, I became a soccer fan, and it became a passion of mine. I mean, a huge passion. And he said, the last two years of my life living at home, he said, my parents didn't have to worry about wallpaper or paint in my room because I had a picture of every soccer player, that you the good ones and the bad ones. See, the good ones were nice, neat, and whatever, and the bad ones had dart holes. You know, I would throw darts at them or whatever. And he said, I could could not stop. I couldn't stand to miss a soccer match. And I was always wanting to know who won and did the so-and-so win. And it's sort of like certain people in the Cubs around here. You know, it's like they just they watch it just really carefully. And he said on Saturdays in the country where he lived, he said there was a show every Saturday evening that would kind of highlight the best soccer match of the week. Now, it wasn't always the best soccer match, he said, because it's where they sent their TV cameras out and they hoped it was the best. But he said at least they gave a rundown of all of the soccer matches. And he said, man, that was a big deal. And on Saturday evening, I never missed that show. It's like watching, you know, what's our ESPN sports, whatever. You get your special show and it gives you the rundown of what's taking place. And he said, I I ordered my schedule on Saturday so that I never missed that. I had my cozy little spot at home, a place where the TV, nobody could bother me. And I it was my chair and I'm watching that deal and I'm getting boned up on everything that happened in soccer that week. He said, nobody and nothing would separate me from that. Until I fell in love with a girl. And he said, when I fell in love with that girl, he said, the bottom line is, I found something better. Something better than soccer. And so he said, I discovered that it wasn't very long after I was exploring this relationship with this woman who later became his wife. He said, I, dis- I discovered that uh, it was Saturday evening. It's like 15 minutes past when that show started. And he said, I, I wasn't even watching. I didn't even, I, did, I didn't even care that I was, you know, not scheduling it in. I, I just wasn't paying attention to it anymore. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that he didn't care about soccer anymore, but he found something better. That's what Paul is saying. I found something better than legalism. And just going to church all the time and, 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 and sitting in the pew and doing what people say today is the right thing to do. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, looking at uh, my relationship with God uh, through a different lens. I found something better. And it was a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here, here, let's jump to verse 10 that we already read. And I'm going to clo- close with this thought. Verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Verse 10 says this. He said, I found something better. It says that I may know him, talking about Jesus. Paul said that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The Greek word there for know, K-N-O-W, is gnosko. Say, so why does that matter? Because there are different words for knowing things. It, 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 this one is not about, uh, okay, we're going to be giving you a test on Friday uh, in history class. And it's going to be over chapter 7 about such and such topic. And so you need, I'm serving notice. You need to read chapter 7. And uh, you p- put all that stuff in there. And you're going to be quizzed on it Friday before you go for, home for the weekend. And so you, you dive into chapter 7 of the history book, 
and uh, you show up for the class and you answer the questions on the quiz. And if you've done your homework and if your memory doesn't fail you, uh, you pass the test. In fact, I can remember sitting in history class and doing the very same thing. And I can remember uh, it became a race with a friend of mine sitting uh, beside me on the, in, on the next row. And we raced each other to see who could finish the test the quickest. And nearly every time we got 100%. And sometimes I'd finish it first. And you know you know how you do. You, you, you finish, you, you're writing as fast as you can. You go, done. Cross the line. Put my chest into the tape. I'm done. I beat you. And then he take, you take it up. He scores it. And you get 100. And say, okay. I not only got 100 on the test, but I beat Rob. And that's all that matters. The next week, somebody asks you the same questions, and you can hardly remember the answer to 50 or 60% of them. Why? Because it was an intellectual exercise. Now, there are some people that have a fantastic memory and they can't forget anything. I'm not talking about you. But basically, I'm talking about the difference between intellectual information and something different. Gnosko is not about intellectual information. Gnosko's meaning is to know someone by experience, not by intellectual uh, approach. This is not learn. This is not uh, ex- experiencing a person through a book. It is experience a person by walking with them, by having lunch with them, by spending life with them, by going to small group with them. By attending church with them. You're experiencing this person. And so what Paul is saying is that I may know experience Jesus in my heart, in my life, in that void, in that emptiness that brings fellowship with him. To know someone, you can't just simply read a book. Now, you're saying, well, the Bible's a book that gives the intellectual information we need. But the Bible is a different kind of book from every other book that you can read. The Bible is a different book. There's no other book like the Bible. How do I know that? Because he tells us that in his word. He says the Bible is a living word. It is a living book. It is alive. Now you say, well, I can't understand that. It's just printed page one. There is a livingness in that book. Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the word of God is what? Living. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the word will tell us whether something that we have, whether that guitar is okay or whether it really is an idol. So you can, you can have the guitar. And it not be an idol. But God knows what the intention of the heart is. He, he knows what place that has. He's a, I can't tell that. But he can tell that. You can't tell that in me. You can say, well, he's got a problem. He's got, he's got three guitars. He's got a problem. Maybe. Maybe not. Only God knows the intention of my heart. Whether those things are a problem or not. And that's why we can't go around with the magnifying glass judging everybody. Amen? It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not wise to do that. Because we don't really know what the intention of the heart is. But he says the word of God will explain that. 
Okay. Now look, look at John one one. Listen, this is about the living word. It's a it's a different book. It's not it's not just pages and intellectual information. In the beginning was the word. That's capital W. And the word was with God. And the word was God. It's talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus. All things came into being through him, Jesus. And apart from him, Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. So this word of God, this, this spirit that when we are born again, that, this, is, this is why reading the book, the Bible, is not the same as intellectual reading in a philosophy class. This is a living word. This is Jesus alive through this book, through this light, through this information that comes into our mind and comes into our spirit. And it shows us whether we have idols and have pushed God out or whether God really has been given place, right place in our hearts. This intellectual information is in reality the living Jesus. And so when we ask the living Jesus, who is God, to come into our hearts... We are able to move from mere intellectual knowledge of God to an experiential and personal knowledge of God because we are experiencing Him in our lives. Do you know Him? Do you, do you know Him? Do you experientially know Him? So I live in America. Well, everybody knows about Jesus. No. Do you know Him? So well, I went to Bible college and I studied all the classes that the preachers have to take. That's, that's intellectual stuff. Do you know him? I, you know, one of these days, you know, it's, it's all going to be revealed. All the preachers that were preaching and telling people how to run the church and how to run their lives and be spiritual, or whatever, didn't know him. Did not know him. Knew about him, but did not know him. That's why every time you turn on the TV and you see the TV preacher, you, you don't really know. You have to gauge all that stuff by what the Word of God says. We can't have sweet fellowship if there are pieces of our heart that are keeping back things from God and from one another for that matter. The pieces of our heart that God can't have are identified as idols of the heart. That's why the first commandment was not to allow idols in our heart. So question, question to us, what are the idols or potential idols in my heart that God wants me to be cautious about or maybe to remove entirely? So this is the close of the service. I'm going to utter a prayer on all of our behalf. I've already given some thought to this myself. And I want to encourage you to give some thought to it before we leave here. Because most of the folks in here, no doubt, have this relationship with God. But, but there are still idols that can push in. And only God can tell us if we're getting too close to the edge on some of them. And only God can tell us if some, something needs to be kicked out. Like Paul said, look, I, I, I stopped all that stuff. I, that's, I found something so much better. Okay, so here are some of the things for you to think about. And there are others. This is not exhaustive. But I want us to think about what are the potential idols that push into my heart that at the very least 
may pull away from my passion and my experience of walking with Jesus and God having all of my heart. Who has, who has your heart? Who has your heart? Health and fitness issues? I know people if they if they have if they miss one time going to the to the gym to work out it's like they've had a bad day. Well, that's a good discipline to have is to get to the gym every day. But if it's become an idol, if it's become an idol, then that's that's an issue. Or some of us we have the an idol that's that I, I'm worried about having a long life. I'm worried about how, what what can I do to to live the longest that I can possibly live. And it's become an idol because it's what you think about all the time. You're worried about dying sooner. Again, that's not sinful, but it can push God out if we're not careful. How about, here's, here's, here's a tough one. Grandchildren. Grandchildren, an idol. And I tell you what, they're, they're, they're precious. They are sweet. It's easy to make your grandkids an idol and to be consumed with being with them and holding them and investing in them and praying for them. And those are all good things, but they can become an idol. Here's one. How about retirement resources? What are my retirement resources looking like? So whenever I stop being punching the time card, what kind of resources do I have for me or for me and my family or me and my wife or spouse? And it becomes an idol. And every day, I, I knew a man back in another church who was a multimillionaire. He's an old man. He's dead now. And, and his retirement was all about, have, he, he must have had eight or ten TV screens in his basement. And all he did was get up in the morning and watch the stock market and played the market. He was already a millionaire, multimillionaire. And that's what he spent all of his time and hardly get him to church. Hardly get him to church. And he was good at it. I wanted to go and say, give me your formulas. Tell me how to do that. But I didn't. But retirement resources can become a passion and can pull us away from the things that we need to be thinking about. And success in business can become an idol. Our spouse can become an idol. Or the lack of one becomes such a passion that it's an idol. Or travel. Say, oh, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life traveling the world and seeing all the sights and whatever. It's not sinful. But if it's pulling you away from the things that God wants to have intimacy and experience with Him, then it's a problem. Toys. All the toys. I sat back and I thought, I've I've had some of these that got pretty close. Pretty close. And, you know, as I'm sitting in my chair and I'm studying and I'm meditating and I'm thinking I, I, don't, I don't know what my wife has probably thought of me at different times. She probably thought he's lost his mind. He's got been overwhelmed by this binge thing. It's like when will it ever stop? Uh, does he love those things more than he loves God? Does he love those things more than he loves me? I mean I, you'd have to ask her but I, I you know because I've got close to that Ed. haven't you all? Can you relate to that? So get close to these. I've got to have another book. I've got to have another library. I've got to have the latest software. I've got to have the latest cell phone technology. I've got to, I've just, and just possesses us. How about, how about positions? I tell you what, if I can't be on the church board one of these days, 
If I can't get on this staff, he doesn't ask me to be an intern or be on this staff. I'll tell you what, that's it, man. Forget this church. And you get you just get consumed by position. Paul was, you know, Pharisee, and I I gotta be the top guy, the best guy. Sex for those of you who for whom it is appropriate can be an idol. Alcohol can be an idol. Drugs can become an idol. What what are the idols that I have to push? Everybody has a vulnerability to these kinds of things. Every last one of us does. And so this is a help message to all of us who love Christ and who are thankful that that relationship that was broken in the garden is now healed problem is we're still living in these vessels these broken vessels we're not in the perfect world yet we live in these broken vessels and these broken vessels can be subject to the fruit on the tree or the lie that says this will make you even happier than what you are but it's a lie so here's a verse and this is then I'm going to pray Colossians 3 1 to 7 If you kind of close your eyes a little bit or shut out. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil desire, dead to greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Oh my. So let's go back to the picture that I started with. I want to make sure that when I cross over to the other side, that I've not missed anything. That I have not paid attention to these truths. And I want to make sure the best that I can that I didn't worry so much about the time and the length of the sermon or the subject matter or the topic that I did not do what God expects me to do to warn the church, to warn each one of us that it is possible to have idols that push God out and don't allow us to enjoy that experiential knowledge and fellowship, the Gnosko knowledge of what we have in Jesus. Every day, we need to let God know that we have experienced something through Jesus Christ in the cross that is better than anything we've ever put our mind to. Amen? Amen? Let's stand. Now, this altar is always open if you want to come and pray and have a talk with the Lord, but I just want to pray for for us before we leave. And Heavenly Father... 
Uh, what a joy to be able to open your word. And I, I pray that I've not spoken incorrectly. I, I pray that I have not misled. I pray that I have not in any way uh, diminished or tarnished uh, what Paul has already done through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I pray that uh, these words spoken, these verses studied, will uh, be an admonition to all of us. That whether it has to do with the time that we give to your service, the time that we give to the body of Christ, uh, to even think about something as simple as coming and showing up to help uh, set up for our, our school year coming up and the opportunity to volunteer, to do things where it's not just about the church, Lord, it's about just our lives and how we think. And Father, help us to keep the potential idols in their proper place. These are things that are not sin, but they become uh, instruments of the enemy to pull us away from you. And so we don't want anything to be at the same level that you are in our hearts. And we thank you for what Jesus did. It's a far better thing. What, What Paul found on the road to Damascus is a far better thing when we had our Damascus experience. And so don't let our toys and our passions and our our perceived needs and our hurts and our our fears uh, to open the, the door in our hearts to anything other than you. And we ask you to forgive us because we've gotten close to the edge. And there may be some things that we need to set right with you and maybe some things we need to say, God. I want to give this over to you, and I don't. I don't want it in my life anymore. I feel like you've told me I don't want it in my life anymore, and I don't care about it anymore. All I care about is what you did for me at the cross. And Father, if there are those that have never met Jesus as personal Savior, they've never had that Damascus experience. Father, help them to reach out to you, to call out to you, even right now, and say, "God, have mercy. I'm a sinner, and and I." I I, I need a Savior. I need what the pastor's talking about. I need that. I don't think I have that in my life. And so help him, Lord, to, to seek out a pastor or a Christian friend who can pray with them and show them how to, how to meet you. It's not just a simple formula prayer. It's not just to raise a hand in a service. But it's about a heart change when we really fell in love, experienced Jesus. So we ask you for these things. And Father, forgive us when we've let idols be in there. Thank you for healing us from many things. Some of us have gone through this exercise before, and we've, uh, we've seen your hand at work to help put our lives in a better pattern. And so help us, Lord, that we will be the best that we can be with your help for you until you come for us. And all of God's people said together, amen and praise the Lord.